and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Uh, Adjust Your Tracking is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes and uh, those of our other shows on the network at theplaylist.net. Just click on the podcast tab there. So we got the house cleaning out of the way, Joe. Uh, here we are. It's New Year's New Year's Eve as we record this on the precipice of a new year. Yes. Um, but we're we're going to be doing a very common thing, I suppose. We're 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 going to be listing, making lists. Yes, checking it once. Yeah, and <laughs> getting rid of them, setting fire to them, and burying the ashes in the backyard of 2018. Yeah. Typically. Uh, people like people's like contempt for the year they just had, I think is just a bad habit where people are like 2018 can go fuck itself. I'm looking yeah. forward to 2019, but I have to say 2018 wasn't the best. So, mm-hmm. but I just think that that's not necessarily the best habit to be in. Cause you're just setting yourself up for the same level of reflective misery this time next year. So, Let's uh, let's reflect on the stuff that we liked, which is this is a you know a top ten of the the movies we most enjoyed for the year, mm. and uh, this was the you know this time what was it six years ago? Ooh, um, yeah, gosh, has it been that long? Yeah, it was our, it was our first episode was uh, best of two thousand eleven. That's and, right. Uh, we had to record it twice because it was <laughs> we liked it we liked it that much. <laughs> yeah, um, my bedroom recording for the first one ever did not did not work sound wise. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Um, it's a process because we I, I think we we got the rust off uh, you know off the first the first attempt then we just like came in ready ready to rip the second time. It's true, and you know I, I remember well our favorite our number one movie of that year was a, was both of us had the same one. Um, Drive was, a, was mm-hmm. our collective number one. I think that's happened. You know, I I'd have to check. I don't know how many times that has happened on the history of this show, but I'm very curious yeah. if that's going to happen this year. I think it's possible, but uh, I, know I hated how it felt. So I've really tried to shake it up at every <laughs> subsequent year. I was like, oh god, we're just such cornballs. We like the same stuff. God damn it! <laughs> you're you're like your list is just like, Oh, Eric will like this one. So I can't, I, so I got it. I got to make Bumblebee my number one movie of the year. Dude, sticking with Bumblebee. Did you actually see that movie? I, you know, this is starting to hurt my feelings. The <laughs> amount that did. we'll like, we'll talk at length about something. and be like, you didn't see that. Did you? I'm like, yes, we've we had a conversation about it. <laughs> this is true. We did. And now I'm awfully, you're, I feel awful. I'm remembering this. You're, you're remembering that. Yes, I did see it. But see, that's the thing. Why would I hold on? It's it's the bumblebee factor. You know, I, I should still take the blame. I should remember our conversations. You make a good point. But why would I care if you saw Bumblebee or not? Come on. I well, this is the, <laughs> easily one of the most hurtful things you've ever said to me. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I gave you the um the dialogue between the ticket taker at the Arclight and I in text form. You did. You did. Like, You're here to see Bumblebee? Yes. I am silence. <laughs> they just couldn't they believe. Just, yeah. Let me in. Um, but yeah, um, let's the, the, this year did feature Bumblebee, whether it's in my top 10, we'll just have to wait and find out. Um, God, I'm not a religious man, but God help us. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, who, who wants to go first? Who wants to, cause last year we, we started by kind of picking up the pace in terms of the, uh, recounting what what our our top tens are we're going like in chunks 10 through six like each of us and then kind of like 
hopping back and talking about the sort of the heavy hitters from the the five that we've listed because most of these movies we've talked about at length on previous episodes this year so we're just kind of like you know touching back with our feelings about them any sort of new revelations that have come to us like over the course of the year like what's what's sort of held up about them at the end of the year what's made them rise to the top out of the films and like overall, what are your, what are your thoughts on 2018 as a year at the movies? You know, I, I'm going to probably, I feel like this will be a reoccurrence every year, but because there's so many movies released every year, I always find about 20 or 30 movies that I'm like glad I saw. And I feel like are the key ones to remember for the future, you know, for posterity. Um, Sure. I I can hear you smirking as I say my top 30, but like, I like to make a list like that every at the end of the year. And mine even exceeded that a little bit. I think I'm at like 35 or 36. Right. So I guess it's not a smirk. It's like a slouch. It's like a 34. (laughs) And then I just melt, melt into my chair. (laughs) So I do always have, um, I, I'm, I, I do find though, typically I'm able to make my top 10, which we're going to generally focus on here. I'm able to whittle that down quite easily, but yeah, I'd, I'd say, um, overall, um, it has been a good year for movies. I would say at the end of the year here, when a lot of the big titles get released, be it for blockbuster box office, like something like Aquaman or Bumblebee or stuff that's being released for awards contention, this has felt like a, um, a more muted release year uh, than last yeah. year. Last year was just like nonstop great stuff coming out, I felt like. Right. Or at least stuff that was being kind of positioned to be great. Like the... Award season seems to be like it doesn't seem to be as like rigorous this year as it does in previous years. Like the the movies that have that I think will be up for most awards consideration were staggered throughout the year. Yeah. Whereas like normally it's like October, November, December is just like a succession of just like what they're hoping to be the big critical contenders, you know? Yeah. And uh, this seems to be just a little quieter in that regard like the the campaigns or you're like a little more familiar like a star is born came out i guess in that um yeah. stretch of time but yeah. it came out earlier in the fall and like it just it sort of made it a little more understated in terms of its campaign it's not as like punch you in the face with academy awards consideration necessarily mm-hmm. it punches you in other places not necessarily in the face <laughs> It does. It does indeed. <laughs> um, well, I'm curious if that one's going to come up later on, actually, because uh, we never did discuss that one. And it is seemingly the big movie for when it comes down to Oscar time at the end of the year. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm certainly curious about that. But I mean, do you have any other overall thoughts from you for the year, um, like movie wise? Well, it's I mean, this has been a gigantic box office year, broke a lot of records uh, and I think that there's a danger in assuming that like money equates to quality, but I think that there's still, um, you know, definitely an interest in the theatrical experience in movies overall. Mm-hmm. So it's like, there's as much as we sort of lean hopeful yet fatalistic or the opposite fatalistic yet hopeful. <laughs> However, whoever wants to win. Um, but like, <laughs> You know, we we tend to be kind of dire since we've been started discussing the state of the industry talks like, you know, six, six years ago. <laughs> but um, but like, I, 
I don't know that anybody knows. And, you know, William Goldman passed away this year and he was famous as saying, nobody knows, nobody knows, like in the industry, they may have like a sense of what typically works, but ultimately no one really knows how it works or why what works does work. Yeah. You have to go with your intuition. Well, and for me, this is, oh, go ahead. No, 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 please. I was like, for me, this is a year where um, that is a good thing to remember. Still, nobody knows anything in this industry, but I still feel good about like, I still, you know, I work at a theater. I still feel good about like the future of the theatrical experience. But what also is sort of not complicating, sort of adding to uh, what I noticed this year feels new um, is adding to my enjoyment and feeling less trepidatious about it is elements like Netflix and HBO and Amazon prime and these other sort of disruptors in the industry don't seem to be ending the theatrical experience or taken away from that. In some ways right. they're starting to co-mingle with that. And there have been so many good things released, um, especially on Netflix this year. I have to admit, this is the year where I really see like Netflix seems legit in terms of film releases. Cause it's, we it's documented on this show for the last couple of years. A lot of the stuff we looked at over the years, there was an occasional good film here and there, but it would spend a struggle uh, for yeah. Netflix. And they really did, plant their flag this year. They released a lot more movies and I'm excited for that future. And I think it will have an effect on the, the um, the theatrical realm, the theatrical business moving forward. But honestly, I don't think theaters are going away in some ways. I think the best theaters, the ones that if you're a movie fan that you go to consistently in whatever city you live in, if you can, it like they will continue, like they should be emboldened to be good theaters to, to, uh, you know, make it a place that people want to come to. And I think if they do that, those places will could even thrive, I think in the future. So I know I've said this uh, before, like I I feel like this is something I've been on about for the last couple of years, but this year really seems like we're seeing the beginning of things commingling a lot more options, but it's not necessarily killing the theatrical industry. Like a lot of people thought would happen. Yeah. It's not, it's not as dire and it's not, it's not as black and white. Whereas like with the rise of streaming entities like Amazon films and like Netflix, you would assume like, Oh, because these are coming to like into, into popularity and prominence that that's going to just crush what's the competition. And that's theatrical releases, except that, people were selling out shows to see Roma and, you know, and so like there's, there's clearly a coexistence that can happen and that can like, you know, like, like we mentioned on the Roma episode there, there is a freedom allowed in now here's, here's a, from the corrections department. Um, I didn't realize that, Alfonso Cuaron uh, financed the movie entirely by himself. And then Netflix bought it from him. I thought Netflix financed the movie and that afforded him a certain amount of freedom, but it turns out that, and maybe this deal was sort of pending. And so he made it with the confidence that like it was going to get bought by something like an entity, like a Netflix. And he was kind of confidently and comfortably made the movie he wanted to make. Which I think that's the strength of like these streaming platforms giving filmmakers, iconic filmmakers who in the sort of spectacle driven culture of like most like major movie chains, like they, they, they're getting kind of squeezed out, but now they're not. 
And so like there, there is a coexistence that's possible and it's, it's heartening. And so nobody knows, like one Goldman said, no one knows, but we know what's in our top tens, right? Eric? <laughs> we do. We do. So yeah, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to take that, that, that turn, that nice pivot you gave me right there. Why don't I list Thank off you. my, my 10 through six, uh, we'll get started. Number 10, I can already feel your eyes rolling before I even say it, is Suspiria. Um, Just briefly, uh, I really liked this movie. I saw it a couple times, and uh, you can find it on our our podcast feed. We we did talk about Suspiria pretty much at length, but I never feel like I got to convey or talk about the stuff I wanted to because Joe just shit all over this movie (laughs) when when we reviewed it. So I'm just saying... Um, I think there's a lot to discuss in this movie that I was hoping to. I didn't get a chance to do it with you, but it's okay. You, you steered the discussion in other ways, and I played quite defensive. I find when I when I listened back to that, that episode, but I really like that Suspiria movie, so it's my number ten. And uh, I don't know if you have anything to respond quickly about that, Joe. But maybe I should just keep moving. <laughs> well, I think I said it all, you like as you, you, as you just you know expressed like i i went all in on my dislike of that movie and, i love uh, i love when we disagree so that was a fun episode and it definitely just went you know we have those occasional episodes where it just goes in a different direction than you or i might be anticipating beforehand but uh yeah 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 i understand yeah. <laughs> i like i said i silently booed as i left the theater but um what's your number nine <laughs> Uh, my number nine is, uh, this is an example of what a great year it is, I'd say. My number nine is The Favorite, the Yorgos Lanthimos film. Uh, number eight, Shoplifters, the uh, Japanese film. Uh-huh, uh-huh, from uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. Number seven, If Beale Street Could Talk, which is the one uh, film on my list that we have not talked about yet, but we are going to dive into it in uh, at length at some point here on this episode. Um, so stay tuned for that, of course. Um pretty wild by that film and can't wait to talk about it in depth with you. And my number six was hereditary. Interesting. Mm, yes. Lay it on me. What's your 10 through six von Oppen? All right. Well, I cheated a couple times. I've got some ties, Ooh. Uh, but my number 10 is a tie between two documentaries, uh, mining the gap and yes. won't you be my neighbor. Nice. Um, my number nine pick is shoplifters. My number eight is also a tie between Karen Kusama's new film Destroyer and Paul Schrader's return to form, I would say, with First Reformed. Okay. My number seven is the same as yours, If Beale Street Could Talk. And my number six is Roma. So, like, why don't we just take this opportunity? One, I would like to quickly mention the tie at number 10. Um, Yes. Between Minding the Gap and Won't You Be My Neighbor. I don't know why. Uh, I just, I, I worry the documentaries don't hit as high up in my like top tens usually just because like there's, there's something about them that feels less 
innately cinematic, but with these two films, they were just so thoroughly immersive for two, like for, for different reasons. The same reason though, being that they're both like just incredibly emotional films. Um, uh, We discuss, I think here and there, uh, won't you be my neighbor, the documentary about Fred Rogers, but never got a chance to discuss mining the gap, which was a, Hulu documentary. Yeah. That's I think it's getting a theatrical run after it was just available strictly for streaming. And um it was something that I would, had meant to watch and then you watched it and you're like I just saw it and I was like ah oh, shit, I should I should catch up. This has been in, like on my watch list for months now. So I watched it, devastated me, and it's like it's one of those kind of like high wire or or just one of those movies that like if you describe it to somebody, you're almost immediately doing it a disservice because there's something so simple about the narrative that's so emotionally complicated when you actually experience it. Yeah. So you're like, oh, it's these, it's about these three friends who grow up in Rockland, Illinois, and they get to know each other through skateboarding. And it's about their kind of like transition into trying to become adults and like facing the, the demons of their upbringing and their sort of histories of abuse and how they're just, they just struggle in this sort of like newfound landscape. And, uh, and I, I, I could immediately, even in this hypothetical feel people pulling away, like, eh, I don't care. Like, or, uh, that's just not enough. Like, are they falsely accused of murder at any point? No, it's not that kind of a documentary, <laughs> but it's like, it's beautifully shot. All of the subjects are just like, I had this weird experience of like watching the three main subjects of the movie I was like, it's weird because it's like they're real people really living their lives, but they all felt like strange discoveries. Like I was like, oh, these, are all, these kids are all charismatic and really interesting and like kind of beautiful in their own way. And it was just like, but they're not actors. So it's just like, you're not going to see one of them in a, in a film next year. Maybe who knows, but like, you know, like it was just like, there was just something so kind of a, uh, just emotionally rewarding about the experience. And I'm glad you, you, you bumped it up my, my watch list. Yeah, man. I'm so glad to hear it's on your list because I, I loved it. It's definitely in my uh, like top 20 list. Uh, so it just for me, another example of like what a strong year it is that that didn't make it on my top 10, but I, I was so moved by this film. I think really the high wire act of mining the gap is that it works at all because yeah. so much of what you said, like, it's a it's one of the great examples for this year uh, of a movie for me that it's how a movie is made or how it tells its story, not what it's about. That really matters because all that sounds kind of eye rollingly terrible to me. Oh, uh, you know, personal documentary. This director, Bing Liu, had been filming all the skate footage for like, yeah. you know, a decade or I, I can't remember the exact time period, but he'd been doing it through the years, just accumulating footage and a narrative was sculpted out of it. And all of it feels not manipulative, naturalistic. It is beautiful and immersive in the cinematography like that skate footage is yeah. something we talked about earlier this year when we focused on the um the indie film skate kitchen mm-hmm. and we didn't talk on mike really about mid 90s but that's the other skateboard movie from this year too and they all have this they revel in this beautiful kind of footage that is so like we both appreciate on just a sort of cinematic level but um mining the gap has the best skate footage but it's also like such a deep layered film that really gets at, I think it gets at things without being 
you know, didactic about it either. It really just pulls you through uh, on an emotional level, as you as you as you mentioned. And I'm so glad uh, that you that it's on your list that we could give it a shout out because you know, won't you be my neighbor was a uh, phenomenon this summer. It yeah. it's one of the highest grossing documentaries in recent years. It made over 20 million, which is just so awesome. Um, but Mining the Gap is getting a lot of critical praise, but it's still, you know, it's hard to know how many people are seeing it, but it's, if you have Hulu, it is, um, it's readily available on there. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, maybe if it makes it to that, um, to the Oscars, it gets nominated, that could be even better for its profile. But I think that one needs, uh, probably some more shine on it. So I'm so glad you mentioned it. And it's, it's, uh, it is a beautiful film to be, uh, left wrecked by essentially. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that just like the rules that are still intact for qualifiers for the Academy. I don't think it's going to be up for consideration. But, I, I uh, could be wrong, but I think it made the final shortlist, which means, okay. it, which means if it did, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. Um, I'll, maybe I'll look it up when I get a sec here, but if it did, that means it got, you know, that brief qualifying run at some point, maybe they did it in LA or New York before it popped yeah. on Hulu It's possible. So yeah. this is just another example of the commingling of streaming with theatrical that we've been, that we already alluded to and talked about that. True. There are ways that this is happening. It's not perfect yet. And, uh, not everybody knows when these movies, uh, are going to be in theaters, but, uh, yeah. Uh, nonetheless, mind of the gap, check that one out. And, uh, yeah, won't you be my neighbor? Um, I, I guess my final thought too, is documentaries in general this year were really strong. <clears throat> um, yeah. there were three other examples besides won't you be my neighbor that were big box office hits. Um, RBG was one, three identical strangers, uh, and free solo, uh, which free solo was always in a really small amount of theaters. And it was the fourth documentary this year that crossed $10 million at the box office, which is a really great number. Um, so that stuff's really exciting that audiences were coming out for these movies at a theater. Um, but I do think, you know, there's a lot of great documentary stuff streaming. Um, we talked about wild, wild country, the Netflix miniseries. Uh, earlier this year, that's probably my favorite overall documentary this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the Gary Shandling documentary on HBO as well. So um, lots of great stuff uh, uh, this year in, in that realm. But um, yeah, Mind of the Gap's one of the best ones for sure. Yeah. Um, what, were, what were some of the, now? What, there were a couple others on here that we could shout out on your list so far. So before we get to yeah. our, our tie at... Um, Never, not a tie, but like our Beale same Street. number seven with if Beale Street could talk. Um, my tie at number eight with Destroyer and First Reform. Destroyer, we will discuss on a later episode because you have yet to catch it, mm-hmm. and I think it'll 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 deserve some sort of like in depth discussion. And there's really we know how sort of uninteresting it is to discuss a movie one of us has seen while the other one hasn't. So um, right, right. But I can't wait. Can't wait to see it, man. Yeah, there's a trailer for an upcoming episode. Um, But first reformed, I'm willing to bet is not on your top 10. Um, It's not in my top 30. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I, I, I knew like your 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 feelings about it going in that like there was, there was something that like in the last leg of the movie that really did uh, an about face. And like, it's the kind of turn that like you're either with or entirely not with. And like, you are not with the ending of this movie. And it's essentially like a character study of a priest having a sort of moral reckoning 
uh, played by Ethan Hawke, where he is sort of enlisted to counsel a um, depressed environmentalist who goes on to take his own life at a certain point in the movie. And it's about the sort of spiraling that happens as Ethan Hawke sort of like adopts all of the concerns the environmentalist had and about the sort of the, the it's like a really interesting kind of doorway into something that uh, an issue and a set of predicaments that like is really hard to ignore, especially like this year. Like yeah. everybody has known the Al Gore documentaries about climate change and whatnot. But like this is a movie that really viscerally kind of like w- the moral quandary that we're in is sort of like really viscerally on display in this movie. Yeah. And there it's also just after Paul Schrader's last movie, um, Doggy Dog, which was sort of like a little cartoony and it's sort of pulpy, like straight to video kind of quality. Mm-hmm. Like this was a movie that was like steeped in a naturalism and a realism where it's like, it was seemed like it was shot in actual locations. Like, Oh, that's probably a real mega churches cafeteria. It yeah. looks and feels like one. And um, that naturalism is a, a turn where it like becomes heightened and like, surrealistic and like really unhinged in the last leg and sort of recalls a lot of the kind of expressionistic turns. Some of his early work did some of it was just his writing work, like on taxi driver and then movies like hardcore with George C. Scott. And so like, I don't know. I, I, the ending to this movie I think was crucial Mm. in terms of like, how else was it supposed to end? And we won't spoil it for anybody, but like, the movie just accelerates and stops and it's just like, yes, because that's where we are. Like we're, we, I, we don't know what's real, but it feels like it's spinning entirely out of control and no one knows what to do about it. And so like, that's what the movie does. And it's just like, this is the reflection and the sort of echoing of our actual time and the predicament we're in inside of it. So I like this movie. Goddamn. <laughs> Uh, that's a valiant, uh, valiant defense and actually not even defense. It's a valiant point. And, uh, for me, it was a movie that I found fascinating all the way through. I just felt like it, it just kind of, it's been about six months since I've seen it now, just for lack of better description, kind of bit off more than it could chew for me at the end. I didn't know what it was going for at the end. And I found that frustrating, but, um, it's a movie that I like am glad exists, you know, for if nothing else, because for one, um, its approach to modern religion is like decidedly unhip. And actually, I really appreciated that. Like, I don't know what yeah. religious movies are trying to be hip, but like the Kirk Cameron movies that like do really well in the Midwest or whatever, or like, you know, Passion of the Christ. It's it's trying to actually be completely even handed and like um and empathetic to like what the, the modern religion is like in this country. Um, and I really appreciated that dialogue, like that it was, it, it it's like a movie that wants to reckon with faith in God and take that stuff seriously. This is stuff that's been in Paul Schrader's films for decades. You know, it's, yeah. it, so it's, it is cool to see the culmination of all that. It's a very mature, you know, developed film from a filmmaker that couldn't have done it in his younger years. 
Um, yeah. And I, I do appreciate all that. I really like most of Ethan Hawke's performance. I also feel like it goes a bit off the rails at the end for me. Yeah. And, but that's kind of the, that is the thing. You, you make a lot of good point. You're making me want to maybe revisit this movie sometime and try to oh. wrestle with it again. Also, just I would I would challenge you to why is like it is because the film set out in a certain direction in the beginning. How is it in terms of it really going for it and throwing down the gauntlet different than your like, why do you make an exception for a movie like Suspiria and not this one? That's well, that's that's a good question. I think my taste when it comes to Suspiria is that it was going for it went for something on a from the beginning. Mm, yeah. Well, you know, that's a good point. I, I, I just liked Suspiria more on a, on a base level or was, a, I, I will have to examine that. I don't know, but you make a good point. Um, it's just one of those things where maybe it just comes down to personal taste. Um, there's so, so but we, but we agree that we are now bumping Suspiria off of your top 10. <laughs> Never. It stays. Just kidding. <laughs> Um, I think first um, and foremost, it's, it's just a movie I'm so glad exists. It did pretty solid to you uh, like for a small movie at the box office. I think there's a lot that about it. It's good for movies overall. That's my view on it. Personally, yeah. I was just more f- interested in it than like moved by it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, if we want to take a little, a little bit of time to show uh, so, our yeah. number seven movie our shared number seven if beale street could talk barry jenkins follow-up to his oscar winner moonlight Mike, when we were talking about how crying doesn't feel special anymore, <laughs> the two of us, right? Because it's uh, happening so often with a lot of these movies. Yeah, like that. It's no longer if it's if it's still special to us individually. It's no longer noteworthy to communicate to other people. Like, oh, it made me cry. Like, do you know that that's what you say about most movies? Is that <laughs> they make you cry? Like, oh, good point. But this movie in particular, uh, like Barry Jenkins really knows how to he's he's kind of becoming signature in some of his touches which Mm. like i think we pointed out when we discussed moonlight at length um that he he has characters look directly into the camera which is playing the part of you know the character that the the person is looking at and you feel the affection, the adoration, the pain, the whatever the person is communicating as they look directly into the camera into your eyes. And like, that's something he did beautifully with Moonlight, uh, making you feel like what this kind of unrequited love for this like friend that this person is pining for. And with this, like you just have these, these two, this, the central couple of this movie who are broken apart when one is, uh, like imprisoned under false pretenses, just like is falsely accused and put in jail, uh, in the 1960s in New York. And like, you just, when you have these instances of these characters staring into the, the camera 
into you, like it is so devastating. Yeah. And it's like, there are moments in this movie that like the performances are so leveled and so intricate and so developed that like, uh, like it may not be special that I'm crying at every movie, Bumblebee included, but like, uh, <laughs> There are there was like a sneak attack cry that happened uh, during if Beale Street could talk because a lot of the communication that happens between this couple that are separated because, you know, the, the, the man has been imprisoned like they're communicating during visitation hours, like through a pane of glass through these telephones and like the level of loaded complication in just involved in them talking to each other <laughs> is just like I was blindsided by a cry that just was like, like it came out of like nowhere. Yeah. Um, it like it, it was a really interesting and kind of uniquely upsetting. <laughs> but um, this is this movie is gorgeous to look at, oh my devastating God. to experience. And yeah, it's just like. It, it, it's one of those ones that's like was clearly kind of packaged and engineered as an award season contender, but one that you, I don't, I don't see why you would like how you can take issue with that. Yeah, there, that would be exactly it. It's sometimes those prepackaged Oscar movies are just great. Turn yeah. out to be great. <laughs> well, clearly this one, of that's course. the thing, um, man, um, so much about this movie that I just adore. Um, uh, you had mentioned how beautiful it is uh, to look at. This might be my favorite score in years. The yeah. score by Nicholas Bertel. It, it's a lot of Barry Jenkins' usual crew, you know, that worked on Moonlight and even a lot of them that worked on his first film, Medicine for Melancholy. Um, and just to see the evolution of these young filmmakers um, and Barry Jenkins evolve as a story uh, storyteller is just amazing. Um, as a film fan, but this movie is so layered uh, and dense and packed with many more. It's where Moonlight was very intimate and focused and its scope kind of zeroed in on this one character and told it in a sort of epic, you know, uh, trajectory. It, it kind of made the intimate very large with the, yeah. the, the sort of things you're referring to the, the actors looking at the, these, these sort of beautiful, um, tactics that these tools that Barry Jenkins used to, to uh, connect the audience to his films. He, he just expands on that with this film. He, he leaps forward with a bigger cast with more subplots with a um, much uh, more non, it's, it's a non chronological storytelling. Um, all of it works. Um, but really, I think the, the real secret for me, what makes this movie just so brilliant is it's the balance because I think if it was too much of, um, at heart for me, this movie is about like an, uh, a very not simple, but a very on the surface of it, a beautiful romance between two people who clearly love each other. Yeah, that that's one half of it. And the other half is this social injustice element. This honestly quite angry and confrontational element of this movie that I loved because this is like the difference between someone that's really good at like, um, like say a politician, although, you know, that's maybe not the greatest place to look at right now. People that can move you, like maybe a, someone who's really good at speeches, they have this ability or people that want to convince you of their, um, you know, of an injustice or convince you of some a wrongdoing. I think the best tactic is when you are warm, you kind of invite people in 
you, you don't just come out angry and you know it's understandable if people take that mood or tactic but like if you if you warm the audience up to your story if in some ways you you do aim to entertain us to move us with this beautiful romance that helps balance all the other stuff and for me does not take away from all the important social points being made the very the really complex systemic injustices that are going on in this it it, that happen in life still today but definitely were just all too common back then it's just this beautiful balance because i don't think the movie would work if it was all romance all just sugary romance or if it was all you know social injustice stuff so um i can't i'm blown away by the balance achieved in this film yeah there's um like there are so many threads in terms of like the cast in terms like, cause he's working with a true ensemble, you know, with this one, as opposed mm-hmm. to the sort of like intimate scaled down group of characters in moonlight. Like there's, there's so many like kind of threads to follow with this and so many kind of emotional directions the movie goes in, but like there's a kind of core, like it, it, it all stems from like them, like the, the main characters, really like being bonded and they're each other's safety mm-hmm. and like their, their love, which like you're, you're mentioning, like if it was just in indulging in the sort of like the, their, their beautiful kind of like flowering romance in this sort of like autumnal look of New York in the yeah. 1960s. If it was only that, you would be doing a disservice to the reality, which is that like they 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 don't exist outside the hardship and the heartache of existing in this brutal system that is like will will not relent and that he like they're trapped in, unfortunately. And this is something that we have to reckon with because we're still trapped in it and we're not far away from it. And this though it takes place in the sort of like the thick of the civil rights movement in the 1960s we're 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 still in the thick of it and we still have to confront it and reckon with it and like this movie finds a way to do it like for all intents and purposes it should be it should be didactic you know but it but it isn't it's poetic and beautiful and humanistic and like it 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 really just like washes over you and pulls you in to thoroughly devastate you when it needs to right right and it's devastating in this thoroughly complicated way for me where there is this beautiful um coupling going on in it you know between the the two lead characters and yet it's 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 so uh full of despair in a way because it it would it it the movie sort of highlights how it takes a romance so strong a romance it takes a love and a you know this is more than just a romance these people love each other these two and like it takes that just to even get to the point where the movie ends and the story isn't over at the end. It's a beautiful, like not anti-climax, but the, the, where it leaves you is the story is not done. And it's like, just to get to that point, it took this like on this, like almost like heightened cinematic romance just for them to make it that far. And so you, you're left with like, the, I'm so glad they have each other, but it's so not fair. You know, it's not yeah. fair that there. And um, I think, I think this movie is, a harder sell for an audience than something like Moonlight, which is weird to say because Moonlight is a hard sell. It's not a kind of movie that tends to gather a massive audience. But um, I I do think this one's going to stick around for a while. It's been doing well at my theater. We had an exclusive over the holidays 
And I think it's just going to keep gathering steam. And I hope it does because I do think this is um, such a more grand story in many ways too than Moonlight. And it's really just shows him as evolving already as a director and uh, Barry Jenkins, that is. Um, gosh, what what an incredible film. Uh, and you know, the performances across the board too. Um, the, the scenes of family dynamics. Mm. Oh, that stuff is so good, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I mean, there's no reason this one shouldn't be up for a ton of awards at the end of the seasons. I'm hoping it's, it, it is, um, because I think it's clear now that like Barry Jenkins is one of the most exciting filmmakers working right now. And it's like, he's just getting started. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, are, are we clear that we're urging? I mean, this is under- <laughs> Or our, our shared number seven, so yeah. I mean, we're we're pretty clear on urging people to see this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, we've got other things we're discussing on this episode that's going to sort of probably divert from this. But it's like we owe this movie like forty five minutes in 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 a better, you know, uh, you know, we could make this as long as we wanted to, of course. But you know, like to keep things moving, maybe we should. But man, we owe this movie. I, I just feel like I could. Um, beyond just talking about it and like going over details and what it's saying and this and that, I just, um, there are rare that movies that I have at my theater, I hear them all day long when I'm there. So it's, I usually get sick of them after the first week, you know, be it like the song that movies play at the end credits. Usually it's something that I just, I, ugh, I, I try to tune out, but I just can't stand. I will, I look forward to just getting, them, yeah, to just listening to Beale street for the next couple months. Um, because that score, uh, the, the, all of it, the lushness, the beauty of it all. Um, it's just, it's, it's an awesome film. And, um, you know, expectations were certainly high. I, I know for me, cause I loved moonlight as well. Um, and it's, it's just so cool to see a filmmaker, like come right back and, and knock the next one out of the park like that. Um, so yeah, yeah. uh, I, I do think it's a tougher sell and we'll see, we'll see how it holds on, but I think it should really be a nice slow burn at the box office and, and hold on here through the winter months. Cause, uh, it's, it's a tough story, but man, to me, in a way, it works like a warm blanket. I just, I love this movie so much. Do you want to move on to your, your five to number one? Yeah, let's Likewise. do it. <laughs> let's do it. All right. So uh, my number five is, and again, these, these next five here, we, we have talked about on, on episodes in full. So they are available um, at the playlist.net. You can find our more thorough discussions of these. So my number five is uh, one that came out early in the year, uh, Annihilation from Alex Garland. Uh, number four is Mandy, the Panos Cosmatos film. Number three is Burning. Number <laughs> number two is Roma. I know we diverge a little bit there. Uh, and my number one is just undeniable for me. Um, it was there since the, the beginning and hasn't been knocked off. And it's uh, Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here. Um, so that's my five through one. Boo. <laughs> All right. So um, my... <laughs> My five through one. Uh, bizarrely, I last minute switched my five and four. My number five is Mandy. My number four is Annihilation. My number three is Burning. 
My number two is Thoroughbreds. Oh, nice. And my number one is You Were Never Really Here. Yes. See, I think this might be the only other year besides 2011 where we match up. I'll have to double check. Yeah. I I told somebody that You Were Never Really Here is my number one. And they're like, like, as much as they like that movie, they're like, huh, I don't think anybody really remembers that one. I was like, so Jesus, like what a lame thing to dismiss yeah. a movie for. Like, Clearly I do. <laughs> yeah. Not, nobody else does though. Hey man, here's what you can tell your friend. Tell your friend this, the playlist.net. It was our collective staff number one. And it was, uh, we do a sort of, um, a point system. So everybody's individual lists. If you, whatever one you put number one, that movie gets the most amount of points. Point being, you were never really here, like destroyed. I first reformed was the staff number two, and it was like 200 points above that. So it was by wide margin that you were never really here was our staff number one. And a lot of us are really proud of that for for a good reason, because it does appear a lot of people have forgotten this movie. But I still can't think of a movie that I was just that's for one, it's it's definitely my kind of film. It's a type of movie I tend to love, but it's such a deconstruction of it. It's so again, how it's told is unlike any other movie of its ilk. And, uh, Lynn Ramsey is top five great filmmakers working today for me and continues to get better. There's just so much. And, uh, walking Phoenix's performance is just, uh, incredible, uh, in the lead. So yeah, it's weird that people have forgotten this film, but that's kind of the nature of the beast, I guess. And, um, it's what I love about our taste is often we are highlighting these movies that are great. I think a lot of people see and think are good or some people see, but they just forget these movies later on. So uh, we're, we're doing we're doing a real service here. This movie's fucking amazing for a movie that was like as kind of like swallow you whole immersive and as just like moment to moment beat to beat electric with like unpredictability like this. This was just like a. It to me it was like that's why I'll um I'll give you credit for your appreciation for Suspiria is like this is a true vision and I I would argue that that one was was as well it's just not one I necessarily want but um you were never really here is just like it's it was like it's stunning from the second it starts yes. like from from like the editing to the sound design by Johnny Greenwood just to like every like everything you have two members of Radiohead in your top 10 um I do <laughs> number 1 and number 10 they're right in the polls yeah. there <laughs> bookends um <laughs> the bends but anyway like this this movie was just so like it's it's what you kind of sit in the dark for to have something this immersive and this sort of like massive to wash over you and like to be able to see it at like a press screening and be like Im- immediately just like stagger out so disoriented and so just like uh, like alive and thrilled and then just to want to see it again and to get a chance to see it in the dome with like a sellout crowd was oh, like it was man. it was really like it got it it got its just desserts you know in terms of like presentation so i'm i'm, I'm glad that you know, it, it, it was definitely one that I noticed that it was like it played for a while in Portland as well. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It, it, it hung out. And as much as it may have like receded in the sort of public consciousness at this point, it made a dent and an impression and rightfully so, because I just think it's 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 the one for the year. And it's a difficult film, too. So that that is a, a... our top 10 of tough cells. <laughs> It's, it, it, but it is like it, you know, I think it made somewhere in the area of like three to four million dollars just at the U.S. 
box office. Not great, but it came out in the spring, and that's pretty solid, actually, for that movie. I do want more people to see it. It's on Amazon Prime yeah. because Amazon put it out, so hopefully it just it gets seen. Um, but I will say, for me, the real takeaway is there's so much to appreciate as a like a cinephile where you can, where, of like the technical stuff in this film. Um, all of it, the editing, the the sound design, the music, all that stuff is just so next level great. But what really cemented it for me as like it would be like early in the year where I was like, it's going to be hard to see a better like if I I'll be shocked if I see a better film by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And why it is still number one is actually how sneakily emotional this film gets. Yeah. Um, and my second and third viewing, um, the third one was when I finally got to see it in theaters. There's a sequence at a lake and it has to do with a burial. Um, Walking Phoenix character is burying someone. I'll just leave it at that. No more detail necessary. And it is beyond just being stunning to look at and to listen to. Um, it's so fucking moving. And this, uh, this film also has both a, an incredibly surreal fucked up final scene, but also finds this biz- this crazy amount of like hope and just enough hope that doesn't feel like a cheat, but also there's like an acknowledgement of the reality and it's all so moving to me. Um, I, I am shocked how moving this movie was uh, as I watched it more and more. And I no longer am because now it's so obvious that that's, that's part of the secret sauce that Lynn Ramsey adds to a very well-trodden genre, like the sort of hitman, you know, revenge crime genre about a loner guy. She, I think brings in her very different perspective to this kind of film. And you get it in these the the very not showy but the very direct uh, technical achievements of the film, but really in the emotionality of it and what she what she focuses on, which is stuff that's different, you know. And it's uh it's a uniquely told type of movie uh of of its ilk, but it's uh it's so fucking moving, man. I I was so like so like surprised to be in tears the when I saw it again and again. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, I think the because the movie is so stylistically heightened there's there's an idea that like because it's so technical it like it's it's too technical to be emotional but its technique is what accesses the emotion because it like we discussed in the episode where we kind of went in depth on it it's it's about how the like fragmentation and disorientation that happens with trauma and like then at at the heart of that trauma is like is someone who's hurt and Joaquin Phoenix's character acts out to overcompensate from this like core trauma that he's constantly trying to sort out in his like fragmented mental state and like there's there's a hurt that like you know all of us can potentially share and that's what human that's our baseline humanizing that happens and i think that this movie if you really drop into it like you can access that and it is like as emotional as it is sort of like technically overwhelming yeah yeah there's there's an immersion to all the films on my list for me i think you would agree probably with your picks too like i i more and more every year i realize like how important getting really not just like sucked in, but kind of lost in a story being pulled in feeling things on a level that maybe you can't even always articulate, you know, like, Mm. um, that is so much of like the movies of this year that I loved so much. I mean, what is Mandy, if not an entirely immersive 
crazily unique type of story, you know, to the way it tells its story and, and yeah. Roma and, and burning, they all do it differently. Burning is this extremely like patiently paced movie, this slow burn mystery without a resolution, without a, a solve at the end. Yet I could not get out of it. You know, I couldn't stop, ta- you know, watching it. Uh, I wanted it to keep going. So yeah, I mean, in the end, if that's, if that's the thing I prioritize the most, even on a guttural level, um, it's it's impossible to deny something like you were never really here because it is just economic and and just uh, from the get go uh, I'm just pulled into its world um, and I love that I love that movies can do that not because I want to forget what's going on out there you want to go uh, deeper into it you want to go deeper into exactly um, so yeah I mean I'm I'm just not surprised that we both landed on uh, you were never really here for the number one of the year yeah and our number three and our number seven I know jeez look at that. Lots of overlap. Um, I think maybe before we sign off, it might be it might be fun just to shout out or you know put put out there a couple um, scenes or moments, whatever yeah. you got. Yeah, and uh, I'm guessing because we talked about it off mic. I tried to focus on a few that are just not on my top ten. So I'm guessing you yeah, did the same. same. Okay, great. So uh, why don't we start with you? Just just list uh, like you know if you want to go through them, a couple moments or whatever that you love this year. Well, I'd say um, one of the sort of most crowd pleasing. So, like not surprises of the year, but uh, just being in a packed audience and having it play them perfectly was uh, Lee Winnell's upgrade. Yes, and yeah. one of my favorite scenes from that movie, which I think is like unparalleled in like action sequences of the year is the first fight scene where the main character <laughs> by Logan Marshall green uh, kind of gives himself over to this uh AI that's fused to his body and like allows him these superhuman like uh, it's martial so arts. Good, it's so good. While he's like aghast and can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, like he's horrified actually. So right. like the, that disconnect of like unbelievable violence with like a, someone who's like dispensing it, but like unsure of how it's possible and repulsed by it as it's happening. That mixture is so like exciting to watch kinetically and like it's it, it's just like it's as hilarious as it is startling and horrifying it's and like, I, it's I, like one of the stars from the night comes for us that action movie it's as if they in the movie were acting like the audience reacting to the horrific right. violence like it's so yeah great. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the, it, like a movie that i don't love but kind of appreciated its uh transgressive uh like impulses was Ishii the killer, which I've never revisited. Yeah. But I remember one thing that stuck with me is like one of the main characters in it is always crying when they're like killing people. Like, <laughs> yes. And they're incredibly skilled at killing people, but they're always like, <laughs> like that, like that cocktail of mixed emotions was really like intriguing to me. And even though the movie made me feel disgusting, like I just thought like, Upgrade did not make me feel disgusting right, or if right. it did, it did it in a sort of rewarding way. Um, and Upgrade it, it was fun. Yeah. It took that, that cocktail and like, and, and really sort of like 
made it sing. So like that was uh, that was one of my favorite scenes. That's a great one, man. What else you got? I also have um, we discussed it, discussed it. I'm disgusted. Um, <laughs> we discussed this on uh, an episode earlier, but a movie that, you know, was was not ever in any real danger of being in my top 10. No, no slight to the movie, but um, sl- support the girls. Yes, yes. The concluding scene on the rooftop where all of the the sort of main characters in the movie join together and start screaming off into the void. And um, it's just like, it really was like a beautiful conclusion to the movie, like in a, in a way that's like natural to the storytelling, but it really kind of like peaks in this great way. Yeah. Like three, three women are all just like, taking turns screaming and showing each other how it's done, how they do it. And it's like, it's hilarious. And also kind of like weirdly heartfelt. I get like mixed emotions, I think is like another, another aspect to movies this year. Complexity. Yeah, exactly. Layers. (laughs) Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to the compliment battle in sorry to bother you. Uh, (laughs) where Lakeith Stanfeld is like his, his once former friend and coworker, they start going at each other antagonistically, but it's all couched in compliment each other. Like you smell good. Oh. And like, it's just like, I remember I saw that in a, in an unbelievably packed theater of 1600 people. And like how that played the audience was really but it was it was a sight to behold. Like it was incredible. Like I was convulsing that. And as as much as that movie is great, but still leaves something to be desired with how messy it is. Like mm-hmm. that scene is like why I'm so excited to see what Boots Riley continues to do. So um, there's that one, and there's also the uh, guns in the Uber scene in Blind Spotting. Oh yes, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Opening scene, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where there are all three friends hanging out and before they realize that their friend drives an Uber, they're marveling at how many guns they're finding tucked away. And it's just like a sort of beautifully establishing the dynamic between the two main uh, characters as friends. Yeah. And they're, they're sort of volatile dynamic. And uh, and it's just like it's such comic mayhem that it's it's great. It's a lot of fun to watch. Excellent, man. Excellent. Yeah, because uh, these are a lot of movies we talked about and, and liked and appreciated in many ways. But I'm, I'm so glad to hear these shout outs because they had these moments that were so elevated like that. Um, yeah. And, and Blind Spotting is another one that just has all this mix and swirl of complicated emotions, competing things against each yeah. other. Um, it's part of what made that so fascinating. So excellent. Um, do you got any more? Or should I should I list a few off? I want to I hear yours. Well, I'm going to start with uh, uh, my I have one from Sorry to Bother You as well. Um, my favorite line of the year, I think I said this when we reviewed it, uh, comes from this movie. And it sort of comes, I think it could be missed because the movie, it comes at a point when the movie really starts to get crazy and mm-hmm. sort of becomes something entirely different, like a completely different genre at a certain point near the end. But uh, there's a line by Army Hammer that is repeated in the movie, and it makes me giggle so much just on a base level, but also with also with what's going on in the movie. But the line is uh, Army Hammer is saying, if you beautiful perversions don't shut the fuck up, I will turn you all into glue. And um, 
you, 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 I'm sure you remember. Do you remember this line? Does it, does it, do you recall yeah. it? Yeah. I mean, it needed some prompting, but yeah. I <laughs> it, it's hard not to, I suppose, but I, I, there, I never, I didn't laugh. That was the, I laughed the hardest at a line, that line, um, uh, in a movie this year. It, it, it just cracks me up to think about it. There's just something so absurd about it, but it also like makes a bizarre kind of sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, that line is really, really funny to me. I second everything you said about Sorry to Bother You. Can't wait to see what Boots does next. Um, and that movie is fascinating because it's so messy. So uh, yeah, yeah, that one's a good one. Um, I want to mention a couple openings from movies that didn't make my list. Uh, one is from the uh, Netflix documentary, The Love Me When I'm Dead, which is the documentary about the Orson Welles movie that also came out on Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. that film that was finished, uh, this year and put out, uh, it was unfinished for about 40 years. That film was called the other side of the wind. Uh, I- I'm not going to d- uh, dwell on it too long, but I basically hated the movie, the, the Orson Welles movie. I appreciate that it exists. And I think it's really cool for a film history standpoint, but, uh, it's nearly unwatchable for me, but the documentary about it was fantastic. And the documentary is directed. It's the second film this year from Morgan Neville, who directed your number 10 co number 10 movie. Won't you be my neighbor? So that director has had a good year. Yeah. Um, and I loved they'll love me when I'm dead. I thought this was a great sort of, you know, filmic cinematic history documentary. It's great for film lovers. The th- scene that I want to highlight is near the opening and it's uh, archival footage of Orson Welles in the 70s. He's uh, quite big and jovial at this point. He's got a big cigar in his hand. And he's talking to press about the movie that he's working on, The Other Side of the Wind. And there's a point where he starts talking about happy accidents. And he's like, that's all we're going to do. We're going to go out there and try to find some for, to see if we can find them. And, he, and it's a really inspiring, great little moment where you you instantly see why people would do anything for Orson Welles while he has these devotees to his work. And as the documentary shows people that he ended up sort of um, really rubbing the wrong way eventually because he pushed them so far, you you understand why people would love this guy and want to do anything for him because of what he says there. And then the documentary Neville just decides to freeze frame on a look that he gives Orson Welles gives to the camera, right? As he says that line, like we're going to go try to find the happy accents. And he makes this sort of like, uh Oh, like a kid who got busted. Like, um, actually it's kind of like, this is a random reference, but, uh, uh, the Coen Brothers movie. Um, oh man, I'm blanking on the name. Uh, uh, Burn after reading. You know the scene when Brad Pitt gets caught in the closet. I won't say what happened. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like you caught me. Orson Welles has this similar sort of like, oops, freeze frame, and it's just a giggle worthy moment that I really just it endeared me to the movie right away, and I just loved it. I loved it on a very base editing choice. Uh, I thought it was really really great. Um, so check out that movie too. Uh, a couple other openings that I'll just highlight your, quickly. Your pull quote from that was, "Check it out. It's giggle worthy." <laughs> That's right. I'm gonna I'm gonna coin that phrase. Well, probably has been already. Um, a couple other openings in brief that I'll just highlight from movies that didn't make my top ten that I really appreciated, especially uh, a film we talked about on our last episode, Vox Lux. Um, this poor fucking movie completely bombed at the end of the year. It got rinsed out of our theater in about 10 days, which is really sad. Um, I think this is one of the better films of the year still. It's in my top 15 overall, Vox Lux. I love the opening credits of this movie. Um, yeah. It's very indebted to The Shining in the way it's constructed and the way the credits play out. It's the first use of Scott Walker's score that's really memorable in the film. 
and it's really eerie and haunting. And um, I really appreciate that film. And I, I hope people seek it out for the future. Um, Cause it's, it's better than you've probably heard. I think a lot of people, a stink got on this movie and just nobody yeah. was interested in it. It's really weird. Like, and yeah. it was kind of after we discussed it, like yep. we were, we were sort of aware as we were going in that like the, there was some blowback and some backlash to the movie. That's confusing. But then it kind of worsened after we recorded where like there was a review of the score on Pitchfork that was like, this may sound interesting on paper. Trust me. It's not. Yeah. Jesus. Like what? It just seems like there was a built in contempt that everybody by and large was on the same page and be like, right, guys, this sucks. Yeah. And it's like, why? Wait, wait, why does everybody hate? Like, did I miss the memo? Like, yeah, it's sad, too, because a couple. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's just like what? Did, what did somebody principally involved with the movie do that was so bad that we <laughs> are all in the same? That I did I miss the group email? Right, right. Like what happened here? And it's it's just it's it's really sad because the lessons learned from a company like Neon that distributed it, they they had similar sort of movies fall at the box office too. Like Gemini was a movie that we really liked in the beginning of the year, and it didn't do very well. It didn't even cross a million at the box office. Um. Border, this Swedish uh, movie that we discussed as well briefly, uh, barely made uh, like seven hundred thousand at the box office. It did oh, okay. Yeah, you know? That shit wouldn't leave. <laughs> it's we've still we had it for a while too. We had Border longer. Border did better at my theater than Vox Lux, which is shocking because it's just a subtitled film and those always yeah. struggle. Um, but I just hope Neon um, can still keep chugging along because they're a cool distributor that's trying to put out challenging films. Vox Lux is unlike anything else that came out in December or really unlike any other movie that came out in 2018, I'd say. It's it's pretty unique um, in many ways. So I hope they don't have to play it more safe in the future. Um, but they did have a good year with Three Identical Strangers was their one hit um, on the documentary yeah. realm. So. I hope they keep chugging along and, and the wrong lessons aren't learned to play it more safely. But um, yeah, that Vox Lux has a great opening and a lot of other great elements to it. Um, and I hope people seek that one out eventually. As, it, as it, an addendum to Neon's uh, struggles this year, uh, Assassination Nation was another movie yes. that they, they bought, like, you know, was pretty, I think they bought for a, a pretty big sum uh, at one of the festivals and like it's an ambitious movie really trying to sort of like nail the zeitgeist of uh the the impulsive culture of like online judgment and how it's sort of leading to this weird purge like dystopia and it has a scene which after you saw it uh you pointed out and I was like, yeah, I totally agree that it's like this single home take of a home invasion. That's so dizzying. And so just like technically magnificent that it's like as, as, as ambitious as the movie is and impressive for that, like it still is a messy movie and it doesn't, doesn't land everything that it's attempting to sort of aim for. But like that sequence is so beautifully executed. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually forgot about that one, but that is one of my favorite sequences of the year. And I, I do remember having to tell you that right away. I just texted you right away after coming out of the theater. I was like, well, that was that That alone. The rest of it, but that scene, like, yeah, that's sometimes that's enough. You know, you just want to get a great moment and most movies don't even have one memorable scene. So that movie is memorable and there are movies like that. Sorry to bother you is another one. These messy films that maybe don't entirely work, but like these are the ones that I 
that I think are a little more lasting and, and worth seeking out um, because of that messiness sometimes. So mm-hmm. they're great examples of that. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, just a few more I want to burn through really quick. Um, we had mentioned the camera locked on the car sequence in Widows, the Steve McQueen film, uh, where it starts in one neighborhood and ends in another. And it's a very particular dialogue scene framed in a way I'd never seen before. That's a brilliant sequence that says so much without dialogue at the same time. Uh, love that. That movie deserved better too. Yes. Um, yeah. Deserved a lot better. Um, and, uh, you know, I had issues with it, but that's a good movie. Um, that's too yeah. bad. Um, the opening of Madeline's Madeline, uh, the Josephine Decker film, that is an immersive pulls me right into a bizarre story. A uh, great opening there. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite moments comes from another messy movie, but one I appreciated was uh, it comes from Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Mm. And it's the point in the movie where it just completely stops to have a dance off for about three minutes. And it, uh, I believe it's the Isley brothers. Um, it's too late to come back now plays. And yeah. uh, the two lead characters that, who are just starting to have this budding romance, just have this dance off in a bar. And it is a joyous, beautiful moment and be, it, it doesn't matter that it stops the narrative that that's the good stuff in black Klansman is that it, it just adds this seasoning to it. It's just this moment where it, it, it shows people black faces, people and having fun, you know, it's not all just a slog, you know, and uh, Spike Lee hitting all those different notes is what, you know, I think we talked about on that episode when we discussed blacks Klansman, but it's his skill, you know, it, it's, it's where you're seeing the inspiration from, stuff like in sour to bother you and blind spotting directors are taking inspiration from spike because he's always been, you know, giving you all these, this complexity of emotions and things that contradict each other. He's kind of one of the best at that. If not, if not the best. So, um, I feel like we have to highlight something he did, uh, uh, in black yeah. from this year. And th- that sequence is just magical. I loved it just as a moment. Yeah. He's like, he's no stranger to stopping cold and having it be something that, uh, like, doesn't detract from the sort of energy of the narrative, but actually ends up recharging the narrative. So uh, like he's, he's just so good at that, especially in revisiting do the right thing a couple weeks ago with him in attendance, which I think I mentioned on the last episode you did. And well, 25th hour, we referenced the, the, the famous long monologue to the mirror. I mean, that stops the movie for six or seven minutes and it's another one of those great moments. Um, so yeah, you know, lots of appreciation for Spike Lee this year. I think it's going to be a good year for him at the the Oscars too. I like again, I that's not like a favorite movie of mine this year, but gosh, I'm I'm pulling for him because it's Spike, you know? He's awesome. Yeah. It's so yeah. good to have him back. So. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that's all I got. What do you say? Should we wrap this one up or anything else you need to put out there? All right, cool. Let's put 2018 behind us. Let's do it. So just chill to the next episode. All right. So this has been episode 194 of Adjust Your Tracking. We'll be back soon enough in 2019. Uh, as Joe referenced earlier in the episode, we'll get back to you with a little Destroyer talk and a little Cold War, I think, is going to come up as well. So there's still stuff coming around that we're going to be cleaning up um, from the prior year, but uh, look forward to that. Uh, you can find all of our previous episodes at theplaylist.net and uh, f- feel free to also you know, listen to the shows on our network as well, like uh, The Playlist Podcast. We added a new show recently called Be Real. Uh, I'm really happy about that addition to the show. Um, we'll s- about Cypress Hill? <laughs> exactly. We, we got Be Real. He's on it. It's a weed show. You know, it's That's just great. like it's like his Instagram feed. You know, uh, I do follow him on Instagram and it's all weed stuff. Can you make um, it about movies? Be real. Yeah, mm, come on. Maybe. 
<laughs> well, whatever you want to do, it's fine. Uh, we're just glad you're here. Um, yeah, so we've we've got uh, those shows on the network, and uh, uh, Indie Beat is another one, so check those out as well. Um, you can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Um, rate, review, subscribe to our show, our feed, if you have not already, and let people know about it. Um, and, you know, really just thankful that we have anybody that that listens to this show, that, that, that checks in with us, that writes in, that's above and beyond. We just appreciate anybody's support of uh, the show. Uh, but, you know, nobody, nobody supports me no- more than you, Joe Von Oppen, and I'm so thankful to get to talk with you all the time, bud. Thanks, Eric. 